source technologies have been hailed as democratizing spaces, spaces where users can help shape the development and evolution of technologies. If you've used Mozilla's Firefox to visit stats and stories, you've used an open source technology, or if you've stalked a long lost high school friend on Facebook, you've also used a kind of open source technology. What you may not know, or maybe you do because you listen to stats and stories, is that some of the data visualizations you come across as you surf the web using Firefox could have been created with another type of open source tech, this time a statistical programming language known as R. Since it was first launched, millions of users have adopted R for data analysis and presentation. The R community is marking a pretty big milestone in the life of the programming language. R's 25th birthday is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Today's guest making his second appearance on Stats and Stories is Nick Team. Team is a freelance reporter whose work has appeared in Slate, BuzzFeed, and Undark. He's also a researcher at New America's Open Technology Institute, investigating fair internet usage and net neutrality. He's here today to talk about an article he's written for Significance Magazine about R's 25th birthday. Thank you so much for being here again, Nick. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm just going to start right off the bat. Why is the anniversary of R something worth celebrating? Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have 30 minutes to answer it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think you summed it up perfectly in the introduction. R democratized uh, statistical computing in a way that uh, no other language really has. Uh, I mean, if you talk to data scientists, if you talk to biologists, if you talk to anyone who works with data on a professional and personal basis, uh, they're either familiar with R or uh, they will gush about how much they like it. I haven't fallen to the second category. <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things where this tool is useful enough and important enough um, in both people's lives and in the work that affects people's lives who aren't data scientists uh, that it's worth recognizing and celebrating. So you've you got to answer the question for folks that, that have not encountered this before. Why is it called R? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was something I actually didn't know prior to researching the piece. It's kind of funny. So the language itself is a combination of two languages. Sort of the way it was created was these two people, um, Rossi Haka and Robert Gentleman, who were professors at the University of New Zealand um, in the early 1990s. So they combined different characteristics of these two languages. Scheme was one of them and S was the other one. As you may have noticed, uh, Ross and Robert, both of their names start with R. Uh, so, uh, and Scheme and S, both of those languages start with S. So, as a uh, as a reference to being sort of the next iteration of both Scheme and S, and in reference to their own forenames, you get R. For those of of us who are journalists on the panel, so what is R? <laughs> <laughs> how do you? How would I explain R to my ninety two year old mother, who's a smart person, but. Uh, would need some help here. Yeah, of course. Um, so I won't say statistical computing environment. Uh, <laughs> Very good. I would say it is a language that allows people to directly interact with data 
and by typing commands to turn data into visualizations and useful results. And one of the things that um, makes R special is that it is free. And that is to mm -hmm. say, um, free as in ideas, not free as in beer. Mm -hmm. um, it does also happen to be free. You don't have to pay for it. But what's nice about it is it's part of this free and open source software movement. So you're allowed to look into the um, building blocks that make our work and mix them around in a way that lets you produce useful tools for yourself. So why, why did R decide to, to roll out as an open source product? So it, it was a combination of things, um, all of which I found kind of interesting. So I came into R in 2012, um, and by the time that I'd started using it, right, the it was a big enough uh, programming language that I, I had sort of assumed it had always been the way that it was now. Huh. Uh, Originally, in the mid-90s, Ross and Robert had considered selling it. Um, they had originally developed it at the University of New Zealand. And for one reason or another, they had used it to teach their uh, undergraduates their, uh, how to program in a statistical environment, basically how to run a statistics lab. And in the process of doing that, they realized that they you know, it, we're in possession of something kind of cool and that could be useful to a lot more people. So they put it online uh, and people started using it and people started developing for it and started trying to contribute. And at some point in the middle of all this, um, you know, Ross and Robert looked at one another and said, well, maybe we could sell this, right? Like maybe we could do something, uh, maybe we could turn this into a product. So actually, they went so far as to buy a book on starting a business. Um, they really, really considered turning this into a product um, that they could make money off of. And it was in large part the contribution of one of those developers I was talking about, Martin Meckler at ETH Zurich, who had already been involved in the free and open source software community. And he recommended to them that maybe they should make this free software. They should let anyone who wants to use this use it, anyone who wants to contribute, contribute. So in, in an interview with ETH Zurich, actually, he came out and said he wanted to do good for the world. He wanted to do something good for the world. And I think that that impetus to try and do something good is why he recommended and why he pushed for are being open source. But I also ultimately think it's why Ross and Robert took his recommendation. They wanted to, and I'm speculating here, but you know, they did think about starting this business, but ultimately they thought it would be more valuable and potentially more successful if it was free and open source instead of a commercial product like, you know, say SAS or SPSS. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, statistical programming language R. Our guest is journalist Nick Team, who has written an article about the 25th uh, birthday of R for uh, Significance magazine. Nick, I am someone who is trained in SPSS. That is the software I use to do statistical analysis in my own research. Why should someone like me, who, who knows how to use that tool, 
consider moving into R. Right, Hadley Wickham tried to convince me the last time we talked when we talked to him. Why do you do you have a, a reason why people sort of move from that space into R or why people should consider it? Oh wow. did did he succeed? I'm contemplating. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if he couldn't, I don't know that I can, um, but I will do my best. <laughs> what makes R special and the reason why I personally use R and think that um, a lot of other people should too is um, CRAN. It's the packages. You know, with SPSS or with um, other closed source software like that, if you want to do something new, something that isn't already programmed into it, you have to wait for the new release. You have to, you, basically you have to wait for new functions to come out through the original channel, right? Yeah. What makes R special is that you don't. Uh, instead of there being one team of developers and all new functions come from them on high, with R, functions come from everyone, everyone who's using contributes. And you can, as a user, take advantage instead of, of, you know, 50 developers work, you can take advantage of tens of thousands of developers work. So, for example, if you need a tool to scrape the internet to get a particular kind of data, I can almost guarantee if you Google for long enough, someone has already put that in R for you. <laughs> and it's hard to find that in other languages. You've convinced me because I do a lot of internet analysis. <laughs> Nick, oh, I'm, that was nice. <laughs> Nick, I'm somebody who was not trained in SPSS or in R, and uh, I study narrative and story. So I want you to tell me a story about how R helps us visualize data, which I think is one of the, one of its important contributions. One of the things that's going into this piece, the piece that's coming out in Significance in August, is a sort of insert that. Uh, describes the process from data scraping to visualization. And I think that that's important because the narrative of, it's funny that you phrased it that way because that's exactly, I think, how R works, mm -hmm. is you can view it as this narrative, right? You have different pieces of it. So, you know, you start from the data. And for example, if we're talking about the tidyverse, which is Hadley Wickham's contribution, you start from the raw data uh, and you have things like dplyr. So dplyr is the beginning of the story. In this case, you start with your data and you can transform it into something more usable, uh, something that resembles uh, what clean data should be. Mm -hmm. Once you have that clean data, uh, you can apply all sorts of transformations to it, anything that uh, calculates the statistics that you might want to think about visualizing. Uh, and at this point, you have you know, things like ggplot come in. So this is a package that takes that transformed data and easily allows us to visualize. So for example, the version of this that's coming out in significance is we look into uh, video game ratings on Metacritic. And the video game ratings that are there, they come with uh, user ratings and critic ratings and sales. And the data is not particularly great. It's a little bit ugly, actually. Um, so, you know, you can transform it and make it look a little nicer. Well, once it looks a little nicer, you can start thinking about answers to interesting questions. Start thinking about things like, well, is there a relationship between the amount of copies of a game that sell and the ratings? Or which developer has produced the most top 10 selling games. And what's great about 
R and the tidyverse is it allows you to very easily think about those questions instead of thinking about the programming. Mm-hmm. So I get to type directly in and say, well, filter out these results and summarize them this way and send it to a line plot. And actually, those are basically the commands that you type. You have mm-hmm. filter and summarize, and it's these semantically meaningful functions that allow you to think about the data and end up visualizing it in a intuitive way instead of thinking about what you should be typing. You know, as, as part of that that story or part of that process that you described in, in your uh, in your significance piece. You, you wrote about the idea of recasting messy data into canonical shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, would you like to describe what, what is meant by canonical shape in this context? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I probably should have cut that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so now you might, right? Rules for what's called, oh, sorry, what were you going to say? I said, now you might. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are three rules for what's called tidy data. That's the, the, the nicer name for the canonical shape. Um, and the rules are basically one, that um, every column contain a variable and only a variable. Uh, every row contain an observation and only an observation. And that um, each measurement be of a single observational unit. Mm. And so these things, for example, um, a lot of the time you'll have count data for, say, income. And, you know, in the columns of your data set, so say we'll say the rows are measurements, right? Like how much money does do the people in a particular country make? There we go. And the columns can be something sort of strange. So we'll say each column is a level of income. So like from $10,000 to $20,000, how many people make that a bunch? From $20,000 to $30,000 and all the way up the ladder. Uh, And if those are the columns, analysis can be kind of tricky because if I want to know, say, how many people are in a particular range or what the distribution over countries looks like, I have to reshape that data in complicated ways to get to answer the question that I'd like to answer. So instead of thinking about my problem, I'm thinking about this programming problem. So what you end up doing is it allows you to write those counts in nicer ways. So instead of having those that collection that could be a very long collection of columns, you can reshape it in a way that takes one of the columns to be well, these are the income levels. So instead of having them in the columns, we put them in one column. And that way, instead of having this oddly shaped data set, you'll just have one column that's countries, one column that is income level, and one column that's counts. And that canonical shape ends up being a lot easier and more intuitive to work with. You know, one, one thing that you mentioned in your significance piece is the idea that, that our culture is evolving. I was wondering if you could comment on a couple of milestone dates within the the R history, and then particular aspects of how this culture has been evolving. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, I would would love to to get to talk about that. So there are, I think, two very related major developments in the change in R's culture. Uh, the, The first happened in the late... 2000s, the late 2000s, basically. And this was the movement from more of a computer science and developer culture to a data science and user culture. And 
I'll explain why these two are related in a second. Um, but more or less what happened, I think at least, is that R was a, uh, it grew out of the open source um, community from the early 90s. And at that time, you know, Google and Facebook and these big data science companies, they weren't around. Uh, so there was a different set of people who were using R um, and computer science largely as a whole. But it was the case that many of them were men. There was a huge gender imbalance. And so as R and these other companies, say Google, Facebook, and other data science companies and data science as a field started to grow, um, it started to attract different users. It attracted a different user base. And one of the people who explained this well to me was uh, Julia Silg, who is a uh, data scientist at Stack Overflow and the developer of the package Tidy Text. And so she explained to me that other fields, and the example she used was the life sciences, had a better gender balance. So as R grew and as more users from other fields, like the life sciences, started to come in, the gender balance started to change. And as more women were using R, I think it got to the point where women's issues came to the forefront of the R culture. And one of the people who played a huge role in this was uh, Gabriella de Kirosh, who started R Ladies. And so her story sort of starts in 2012. She moved from Brazil to San Francisco for her master's in statistics. And while she was attending a lot of data science and statistics meetups, the phrase she used that I think was a really important was that she didn't see herself represented in the audience there. Mm -hmm. And that lack of representation led her to partly not feel welcome and partly not want to engage in the way that she deserved to be able to engage, right? So she created a space, Our Ladies, this Our Ladies meetup, where she could see herself and present an environment for other women and people of underrepresented genders to see themselves represented and feel comfortable asking those questions and making suggestions that they might not otherwise feel comfortable making. And so I think it's important to mention, as I talk about how ours culture has approached gender parity, that it is only approaching gender parity and that there's still a lot of work to be done, right? The, the statistic that jumps out at me is that the R Ladies Task Force on Women and Underrepresented Genders, I believe is the name of it, collected seven years of demographic data from the USAR conferences, which are a big series of conferences that uh, our users attend. And in 2004, uh, absolutely none of the percentage of invited talks were given by women, which is, uh, wow. yeah, it says a lot. And in 2016, that number jumped to, uh, over time, in, over that period rather, the number jumped into the high 30s. That's a huge improvement and it deserves to be commended, right? But parity is 50%, not 37%. So I think the work of Decriage and a lot of other people who worked hard to improve that gender parity has to be commended, right? You need to absolutely recognize the work that they did and are doing, but at the same time recognize that there's still work to be done in the culture. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking R with journalist Nick Team. Nick, 
you mentioned uh, the dis a distinction between data scientists and statisticians, and maybe John can help here. So, <laughs> what what is the difference? Oh wow, um, I, I'm more <laughs> curious about John's answer than I am. About that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm I'm here. You're the, you're on the you're the guest. I guess go first. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, so I think it might be useful to draw from some of the interviews that I had. So a lot of the people who I talked to over the course of this, so Hadley mentioned this, uh, Robert Gentleman mentioned this, Thomas Lumley, who's one of the people on the R core team mentioned this, they all mentioned it one time or another in the past, sort of either being looked down on or having their work be sort of ignored because it was computationally uh -huh. focused instead of, say, theoretically focused. Oh, I I believe that Lumley's line was, um, I got tenure despite working on R, not because of it. <laughs> and so to me, and I, I'm sure this is a very broad overgeneralization, but to me the difference between statistics and data science is exactly that emphasis on computation and computer science in statistics. So sort of the combination of computer science, um, statistics, and mathematics is where I think of data science being and mm -hmm. statistics being one of those components. Yeah, and I, I think, Nick, that I, I agree with you. I think you, you end up taking someone in stat, you end up enhancing a fair amount of, of computational foundations and skills, as, coupled with the, the mathematical foundations and skills to build this, this data science kind of person. Is there still that uh, that hierarchy that looking down on data scientists, or is that uh, gone away? I think it's just different. It's different. I think okay. you know. I think people are. It's just a different type of pursuit. Mm -hmm. I think, in fact, it's probably gained a, a you know a lot of respect. What do you think, Nick? I think that that sounds right to me. The I, I know that some statisticians. So, for example, I I don't want to take any of Hadley's stories, you're having him on before me. Oh, so I guess he gets the opportunity to say it before this airs. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so something he might end up mentioning is that people don't necessarily, a lot of statisticians don't view the tidyverse and his contribution as necessarily being statistics. He's told me that they view it as being something else, maybe computer science or, you know, just sort of this game playing with the shape of data. And that, I think, is wrong because it's you know, statistics deals with data, so if your data is in the wrong shape or if you can't use it, then you're not, you can't do statistics. Um, but just the fact that people feel comfortable saying that, especially when, you know, our studio and uh, the Tidyverse have the success and the impact they have, shows that at least in some people's minds, that hierarchy is still there. You know, I think that, that the uh, th what comes to mind for me is to think about what's the, the history of statistics. I mean, if you think about experimental design, you go to Rothamsted and an experimental station. If you think about T-tests, you go to a brewery in Dublin. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, this is perhaps just the modern flavor of this. The types of data that people are encountering requires tools that are being built out that allow you to explore them computationally. I have a question for you, Nick. Uh, so I asked this of Hadley as well. What is the most interesting or surprising way that you have seen people using R? Oh, wow. Um, I actually, I think I have an answer for this one. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> this is somewhat accidental. Um, it's accidental is actually in the name, but there's this, uh, there's this Tumblr account called Accidental Art, uh, uh, with the pun being uh, A capital R T. 
Um, and it's basically people who try to visualize things in R, and it doesn't necessarily go all that well. <laughs> this sounds like my future. That sounds yeah. good. <laughs> well, in the event that that does happen, you should submit it, because sometimes some of these strange um, visualization, what could be deemed failures, end up looking you know, very aesthetically appealing. So they collate them, put them together, and actually in, um, I believe it was a college in South Korea, they held an art show uh, made up of accidental art. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That's awesome. Hey, I have a question about kind of uh, where you are now and how it relates to some of what what your interests are. You've been involved in kind of fair internet usage discussions and net neutrality, and you're talking about open source software in this significance piece. Can you talk a little bit about what, what are some of these the big ideas in terms of fair internet usage and net neutrality, and how might that relate to some of the open source software stuff? Um, so this is, uh, this is a topic that's very close to my heart, and it's a story that hopefully by the time that this comes out um, will be published somewhere. So I, I have access to... Uh, this data is actually open, it's free online, which somewhat relates, but it's internet traffic measurements. So when you go to Google and you type in, how fast is my internet? Uh, there's a sponsored tool there and you can click on it, it measures your internet speed. And so actually it saves that in a data set that contains the speed of the test, the date of the test, and some other variables as well, including geolocation. So, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very interesting problem whether people are comfortable or know that that is something that's happening. And there's a discussion there for sure, but it actually isn't the one that I'm particularly focused on. But the work that I'm doing is something that got talked about some, but in my eyes not nearly enough, is the telecom situation in Puerto Rico after Hurricanes Maria and Irma hit. So there were huge blackouts. A lot of people didn't have access. Most, almost everyone didn't have access to electricity or internet for a long time. And people are um, still in the dark and still without communications in a lot of places. But what makes this data special is that I can look at internet speeds and look at internet availability on Puerto Rico after and before the hurricanes. So that's the work that I'm doing right now is investigating um, what that recovery looked like, where it's even happened, um, and what the damages looked like in the first place. And one of the really striking results that I'm discovering is that there was a lot of the internet speed basically remained stagnant from 2009 until 2016 on Puerto Rico um, due to lack of investment in a lot of ways. And there was an improvement in 2016 and 2017 leading up to the hurricane. Uh, The hurricane struck and undid a lot of that improvement. But in the recovery, uh, the recovery has been very segmented. So the faster speeds recovered quickly and got back up to their original speeds. You know, it took a month, it took months, but they got back. For median speeds and for lower speeds, they're still recovering. They still haven't reached the pre-hurricane levels. So it's this idea that um, in these kinds of crises, it feels like everyone suffers, but it's oftentimes the wealthier who recover. Well, Nick, thank you so much for that. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. We'll have to have you on again to talk about this at some point down the road. (laughs) That would be great. 
I would love to make a third appearance. That'd be fun. <laughs> Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.